Please open to Nehemiah 13 in your Bibles. Our God remembers us for good according to his grace. If you would, please stand now as we attend to the means of grace, the preaching of God's word. We'll have it read this morning. This is the final reading from Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13, beginning at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Remember again that the grass withers, flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. Let's hear and heed it faithfully now together. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and, made him, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you, and do all this great evil, and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God." because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything for him, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Please pray with me. Our great God in heaven, we've come to a very interesting text. We believe that you've inspired it by your spirit. We ask that you bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, in spite of all of our frailties, might the strength and the glory of the gospel be made known in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We come now to the end of the book of Nehemiah. And if you remember, we began with Ezra, a brief tour to a minor prophet. 
We are now at the end, having consulted uh, the elders of the church and several ladies in our church for whom I have tremendous respect. I am going to preach next on the book of Acts, uh, which I've actually been intending to preach for quite a while, but now we will soon come to it. I'm actually excited about it. I've never gone through Acts before, and it should be, uh, Lord willing, a very edifying time. But let's come back to Nehemiah and think about the end of this book. And as we have gone now, all the way not only through Nehemiah, but even Ezra as well, let me ask the question, what sort of an ending were you expecting? What were you expecting to find here at the end of this book? Were you looking for something of a happily ever after? Sadly, the book does not end with a happily ever after, but rather, in many ways, uh, something of the opposite. It actually ends on a note of frustration. You sense here, at the end of the book, a desperate need of resolve in a narrative that has been full of conflict, a resolve that only the gospel itself can bring. But the final chapter does show us something very important, that while the people of God may be weak and sometimes forgetful, God himself is strong, and he always remembers his people and his promises. You have an outline in your bulletin. Let's work our way through it. First point is going to consider how they profaned uh, the Sabbath. Verses 15 through 18 in our chapter describe a dark day that happens to be the Sabbath day. On the one hand, something beautiful and holy, and yet something that has been desecrated and profaned. I mentioned a little while ago in the prayer, uh, that sadly we just learned about a war starting again in Israel, something that's not happened since 1973. And if you note the particular timing, it began on one of Israel's holy days. Uh, This is not simply the beginning of a war. It comes with a spark of religious jab. In many ways, adding insult to injury. In Nehemiah 3 It is not just a foreign people who have profaned the Sabbath day. It's actually the people of God. It leads not with a foreign invasion, if you will, but rather an invasion within the heart. Verse 15 gives us a little bit of a catalog of what they were doing. They were treading wine presses. That is to say, they were working on the Sabbath day. They were bringing heaps of grain, which is to highlight that they were selling on the Sabbath day. And finally, they were loading up their donkeys, animals that are commanded to receive rest in the fifth commandment. Working, selling, forcing others to labor. You begin to see the point. Israel themselves were profaning the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah warned them that this was wrong. Verse 16 demonstrates it's not simply the people of God, however, that were doing this, but also foreigners are mentioned, the Tyrians, uh, who were a foreign people. Some of them lived in the city, and they brought their wares to sell. Uh, apparently, they had fish. I love fish, but that doesn't mean that what the people of God were doing with them on the Sabbath day at that time was right, and all other kinds of goods were brought. And Nehemiah really emerges in this chapter. If you've liked him and thought him of something of a hero along the way through the book, he's a little fiery and a little feisty in this chapter. He is, in some ways, inflamed. Notice the way that he describes here the language of what they were doing. Not only were they buying, working, and selling on the Sabbath, but he highlights in Jerusalem itself. They weren't simply profaning the Sabbath. They were doing it in the holy city. They had come into the holy city to engage profane business. 
when Jesus drives out Matthew changer, money changers in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, they were exchanging money and selling things in the outer court of the Gentiles for the purpose of worship. Here in Nehemiah, it's not even close to that sort of spiritual, if you even call it that in the first place. There's nothing spiritual about it. This is straight-up secular consumerism on the Sabbath day inside the city gates in Jerusalem. It's a sad portrait. It's an unlovely garment. The people of God and the world had blended seamlessly into one sin-stained garment, profaning God's Sabbath day. And this, in many ways, beloved, it's exactly what sin does. Sin, in a certain sense, looks at us and says, I'm okay, and you're okay. There's, there's not a problem here. In fact, everyone's doing it. Let's just go along to get along. The world leads the way, and the people of God are often tempted to follow. That is the problem here in Nehemiah 13. They're not only breaking God's word, uh, the fourth commandment, uh, but in many ways, they're breaking even their own word. If you turn back a page, let me hear the sound of it, turn back a page to chapter 10, verse 31, you can actually understand a little better while Nehemiah is so hot. In 10, 31, notice what the people of God promise. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. People of God in Nehemiah 13 were not simply breaking the fifth commandment. They were breaking their own promise that they just made. They had obligated themselves to do the exact opposite of what they're doing here. And now you begin to see why Nehemiah is so frustrated. Not simply breaking the law, but breaking personal promises, a covenant that they had just renewed with God. And so what does he do? Well, he confronts the nobles. He outranks them. He is the governor appointed by King Artaxerxes of Babylon. And he asks them a rhetorical question in verse 17. What are you doing? We get asked that question sometimes, don't we? It's sort of rhetorical. What are you doing? It's kind of like the question, where are you? But within the question is the answer to the question as well. What are you doing profaning the Sabbath? This is Nehemiah's way of reminding them that this is not just sinful, that is to say uh, profane. It's also one of the reasons why God punished his people and brought judgment upon them in the past. The same word for the evil thing that they are doing uh, is the same Hebrew word for the disaster that God has brought upon his people, the word ra'ah. They, they did evil in the sight of God, and God brought disaster upon his people. They sinned, and God judged. And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. And here's his point. If they sinned in the past by breaking the Sabbath, and entered into judgment, how much more shall we? Why? Because we stand in the position of history with the privilege of history behind us, and we ought to have learned some lessons by now. Some things are right, and some things are wrong. Some things God will overlook, and some things he will indeed judge. If they sin and receive judgment, uh, how much more? Remember, these are the people of God that have just come back from exile. And why were they exiled away from the land in the first place? But because they'd broken all of God's laws, including, in particular, the Sabbath day 
as well. And so now here they are, back in the land. The temple's just been rebuilt. The city walls have just been completed. And you ought to be a little frustrated when I tell you, and they're at it again. They're right back at it. What's the line? Those who forget their history are the most likely to do what? Repeat it. And that's exactly what Israel is doing. To say it kind of forcefully, in the very colorful language of a proverb, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly. I once remember visiting a church in the South. I always love hearing people with strong Southern accents, and the preacher there was describing sin like a lure. And I want to imitate his accent, although I'm tempted. But he was describing sin like a lure, constantly going right in front of a fish's mouth and eyes, and eventually, even though that fish has seen it several times, maybe even bitten it before, there's something about the shine. There's something about the sway. There's something about the lure that is alluring, and eventually it finds its way, that hook, back into the fish's mouth, the shiny promises that don't deliver, and then what? Sin leads you wherever it wants to take you, ultimately on a path that leads to death. But there's hope. Be thankful that's not the end of the sermon. Our second point, there's an effort to protect the Sabbath. Nehemiah does emerge in many ways in this book as not simply a strange hero, but an unlikely one. And perhaps uh, after reading this section, if you paid attention as I was reading, one might be tempted to say to someone like Nehemiah, quoting from a children's movie here, I'm beginning to question your methodology. He's a strange pastor. Uh, but we cannot question his zeal. In verse 19, the sun is going down. This is the way that the Hebrew people mark the beginning and the end, not simply of the Sabbath day, but each of their days began with sundown, uh, not at midnight, the way that we do. That's how their days were framed. And as the sun begins to go down, Nehemiah's temperature begins to go up. He commands that the gates of Jerusalem should be closed and not open again until after the Sabbath. This is actually a rather bold move for several reasons. On the one hand, it might appear that he is attempting to lock sin out, a theme to which I will return, but he's clearly locking people out, people who might come in to buy or to sell. City gates, however, were very important at this time because most people would try to be inside the city by sundown for safety's sake, but there are always stragglers, there are always travelers, those that would come from a distance and not make it by sundown and want to re-enter the gate. Here Nehemiah has said, when those gates are shut, no one shall enter, you shall not pass. This is a desperate measure called for by Nehemiah during these desperate times. And to use a big word to explain, it might even appear somewhat draconian, a word that's become very popular again. What does that mean? Excessive force from on high, overly micromanaging the behavior of a particular people. It also might even seem a little bit legalistic. Because after all, here we find Nehemiah trying to manage the people of God's hearts. Externally, that is. While his questions might slow you and me down a little bit, they certainly did not slow Nehemiah down. But I want to point out that Nehemiah here is not simply one who is engaged in the building of the wall upon which the people stand. There's a sense in which he's building another wall. 
He is trying to build a spiritual wall of sorts. Look at what he does. He locks the gates of the city. He stations his own servants, his royal guard, if you will, at the gates. This is Nehemiah using his authority to put his foot down. It appears that days, perhaps even weeks, go by because he describes not simply one Sabbath day, but many. And over the course of these weeks, uh, the merchants who were locked out, camped out, right in front of the city gates. And you can picture Nehemiah looking down on them like, what, what are they doing there? What they're doing there is they're waiting for the Sabbath day to end so they can be the first to re-enter the city gates. And when Nehemiah sees them doing this, he is like a hornet whose nest has just been hit. He strikes immediately in his own way, says to them, not today. He threatens them to arrest them, to lay hands on them in verses 21. And from that point forward, they stop coming. But Nehemiah, who again is building something of a spiritual wall around the hearts of the people of Israel, he now adds another layer. He commands the Levites to purify themselves and to go and to guard the gates. This is very provocative because the Levites were given a charge to purify and to guard the temple. They're never commanded to guard the city gates this way. But this language of guarding does not go unnoticed. It is not unfamiliar language. We've seen it before. God, throughout the Bible, is actually quite often seen guarding things that he deems as precious and holy in his sight. It is the same language we meet in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve are kicked out, God sets a pure guardian outside the city gate, the gate leading back into the garden itself. And the point is, the garden was holy, and so it must be guarded. The temple is holy, and so it must be guarded. But here Nehemiah expands this, expands it in such a way that the holiness of the temple now extends to include the city walls itself. And so he sets not simply a royal guard, but a priestly Levitical guard as well. If Israel has strenuously profaned the Sabbath, Nehemiah stretches even more strenuously to protect it. And this brings us to a third, and I admit, a slightly long but very important point, purifying the people. In many ways, we might argue that this is the theme of the book in a certain sense. God's goal to be glorified through the salvation and the sanctification of his people. God's pastoral intent upon purifying an impure people. But as we make our way into this point, uh, one final offense has to be noted along with Nehemiah's very peculiar, highly peculiar response. The people have intermarried. Again, this is not about racial segregation. It is about spiritual segregation. And not only have the people intermarried, but their kids have not learned Hebrew, the language of Torah, the language of the Word of God, the language of Israel. And this appears to be the most offensive thing that has happened yet to Nehemiah clearly the one that agitates him the most. And why? Why might this be even more offensive than breaking the Sabbath? Well, just like the Sabbath command, it came from Scripture, and they were breaking it. There were laws in the Old Testament forbidding Israel to intermarry the way that they have. And here they are once again breaking those laws. And as with this particular group that just made a promise to God to keep the Sabbath, this very same group also made a promise not to intermarry. This is like being on a 
in a boxing ring where the person on the other side of the ring keeps smacking you with their broken promises. Broken promise, broken promise, broken promise over and over again. If you go back to chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, there it is. We promise we will not intermarry and we will not give our sons to foreigners or daughters to foreigners. But here they are breaking those very same promise. Why is this a tipping point for Nehemiah? It almost seems like when Nehemiah begins interacting with the kids, that's when he really loses his cool and becomes white hot with rage. You can almost picture him in your mind coming back to the city. He's been gone now for a while. Remember, this is his second coming. He was there. He went back to Babylon to serve alongside Artaxerxes and then asked for leave again when he heard that Israel was slipping. And so when he comes back now, after some time, he re-enters the city, he sees the people, he senses not only that they've intermarried again, that would be somewhat obvious and visible, but then he stoops down, if you will, on a knee to engage a child of Israel that doesn't speak Hebrew. The future of Israel slipping spiritually away. As goes the hearts of our children, so goes the future of our church. Israel no longer speaking the language of the word of God, but rather the language of pagan nations. Nehemiah flips out. Not only do they only speak that language, they only speak that language. So what do you think about the next scene? Verse 25, let me say it like this. Verse 25 describes a very unusual pastoral visit. <laughs> Your elders here have recently taken a look at our documents that you know, we use, uh, little guides that might be something of a help when we uh, do pastoral visits. You can be grateful that we did not consult Nehemiah 13.25 as a paradigm for how we might interact with those that we feel are falling uh, somewhat subpar beneath our standards. It's a lovely little verse here to imagine what was this fellow thinking. Let's read it together. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. This is a pretty wild moment. This is a man who arguably has lost his cool. How would you respond? Could you imagine just the horror, the shock, and then there's all the hair on the ground? <laughs> Nehemiah that made them take this oath in the name of God not to intermarry or to allow their kids to do so. He once again <clears throat> illustrates, we've been here before, folks. This is not the first time we've had to visit this subject. He uses again the argument from the greater to the lesser. He reflects on King Solomon. Uh, this is in many ways the Humpty Dumpty of the Old Testament. So high did he ascend, so greatly did he fall. The great king, the beautiful language here that's used to describe him. Uh, among the nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. And yet Solomon, this great king, the wisest man who ever lived, couldn't keep his eyes off other women. And they became his weak spot. And that lure and its sway 
seemed to find its way into the mouth of the king. And Solomon, who rose to the top, Solomon had a mighty fall. God brought judgment upon him. What is Nehemiah's point? If even King Solomon could not only be swayed, tempted, and fall, surely so can we. And if King Solomon, if King Solomon was not above the just judgment of God, who are we to think that we can just play with sin like a teddy bear and expect not to be stung? If King Solomon sinned like this and did not get away, how shall we? That is his point. And there is one final act that Nehemiah does. In many ways, this is uh, <clears throat> the last act before he walks off stage. <clears throat> one final act of purification or reform, if you will. Nehemiah uh, encounters a man named Jehoiada. Jehoiada, in many ways, he ties the whole thing back together. It takes us back to the very beginning of the book. He's the son of Eliashib. Uh, son or in-law, son-in-law of Sanballat. If you remember from an earlier station in our book, it was Sanballat <clears throat> along with Tobiah and one other man who all were antagonists to the people of Israel, who were all opposed to the work of Nehemiah, who stood against the rebuilding of the city wall, who mocked and provoked the people of God and their leaders, including Nehemiah, as they did so. It's another way of saying, here comes the snake, slithering, back into the garden of God. And apparently, while Nehemiah was gone, just as he gave Tobiah living quarters in the outer court of the temple, apparently he has also made this man a temple servant, perhaps even giving him the status of a priest. And if Nehemiah freaked out a little while ago uh, when he pulled the hair out of the people and beat them, here he chased this man out. I have to picture Nehemiah, I don't know, was he young? Was he old? Was he big? Was he small? Was he threatening? It kind of doesn't matter. He's so angry. He's chasing this man away from the temple and from the city. And then he prays. Remember them, O Lord, for what they have done. There's one prayer here. Remember them for the evil deeds that they have done. Another here prayer here before the final one. Remember me for the good that I have done. It's almost as though Nehemiah knows that for upholding God's word in ways regarding the Sabbath, he's going to take some heat and some flack for it. It's almost as though Nehemiah knows for upholding the word of God regarding interracial marriage and purity, even uh, the responsibility of parents to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, he's going to take some heat from it. And he certainly knows here at the end that in chasing out this Jehoiada, who is a political son of favor, and prominence, that he's going to take some heat from it. So he asked God to remember not simply his enemies, but to remember him also for good. He reflects on the work that he has done, and in many ways is a summary of the book as a whole. Thus I have cleansed, O Lord, everything foreign. Thus I have established, O Lord, the duties of the priests and the Levites. Thus I have provided, O Lord, for the offerings, for the sacrifices of our God. O my God, remember me for good. I want to zoom out for just a moment here because we're at the end of the book and ask the question, what happened to our happily ever after? Why doesn't it end this way? Let me rephrase, where is that happily ever after? Well, very clearly, it's not here 
And this is the point. Nehemiah and the Israelites have now rebuilt the wall. Not simply walls of the temple, but the walls of the city. And did it keep the nations out? No. And be with me here. Why? Because Israel opened the doors and let them in. But there's another point. It pierces even more deeply and rather importantly. And it is this. Does building walls keep sin out any more than it kept out the nations? The answer is no. The book of Nehemiah actually displays Nehemiah working, particularly this last chapter, to build two different kinds of walls, one material and the other moral. Here at the end of the book, the city wall is built, but Nehemiah is quite busy. Another wall is under construction, a moral wall. Nehemiah is hard at work. Think about what you would do if you were rebuilding a city wall. You would do exactly what he has done. You would tear out uh, old, compromised points of the structure, just like a carpenter would take out wood that's been eaten by termites, soft bricks, compromised seams. And this is exactly what happens as he takes out Sabbath breakers and their wares. Nehemiah hard at work rebuilding those places that were compromised, stationing servants and guards to protect and to enforce. And Nehemiah not only enforces the laws, but he binds the people of God once again here at the end of the chapter in a promise not to break them. But how have those promises gone? How does it work when Nehemiah externally attempts to micromanage the behavior of the people of God? Did locking the city doors at night stop the people of God from breaking the heart in their Sabbath? It's a great question. Does locking the doors at night stop the people of God from breaking the Sabbath in their hearts? To say it differently, did forbidding the people from intermarrying stop them from lusting after the nations? And the answer in both both cases is no. And one final one, slightly awkward, did beating people and pulling out their hair incline their hearts to teach their children the words of God. Here's the point, beloved. Our sanctification, just as much as our justification, cannot be manufactured from the outside. And it's a really important point. That's why, at the end of this book, although the physical walls are rebuilt, the spiritual walls have a long way to go. And at this point, In redemptive history, there is no happy ending just because material walls have been built. What Israel needed, to say it differently, what the people of God needed, was not just more laws. More laws don't create more sanctification or more obedience. What Israel needed was not just more laws and higher walls. What it actually needed was a change of heart, a better heart. A Jeremiah 31 kind of heart. One of the things that's very interesting about the book of Nehemiah is that what it does is sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament. In a certain sense, the rest of the Old Testament from Nehemiah 13 to the coming of John the Baptist is the same chapter in history. Days of the prophets, not looking back, will look forward to a new order of things. A different city, a different temple, a different priesthood, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. 
even a better savior than we find in Nehemiah. He's actually a rather strange character, flawed and imperfect in many ways. And his ways and means of handling the people of God at some points are ones that we would commend at others I'm sure we would not. So what is it then? Press the question. What is it at the end of Nehemiah that the people of God need for a happily ever after? They need is Jesus. One is far better than Nehemiah at enforcing the law. One is far better than the people of Israel at keeping the law. To say it in theological language, what the people of God need is what they clearly do not have, actual righteousness. They need an alien righteousness and an indwelling spirit. They need a righteousness that comes from outside them, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us when he obeys the law and he is the one who is beaten and cursed for us. And they need an indwelling spirit, not simply rules and high walls externally trying to micromanage our behavior, but rather a life-giving spirit that conforms us to the image of the Son of God and does a far better job than simply micromanaging. And what they need, beloved, is to be guarded. The problem with city walls is whether locked or open, sin, like a snake, can still slither in. That's why we take great comfort that so often in the Bible, Old and New Testament, God is actually described as the guardian of his people. The God who remembers us in his son Jesus Christ is the God who guards us, not simply in his son, but also by the power of his spirit. In fact, one of the great promises of the covenant is not simply that God will never leave nor forsake his people, but that the God of peace will be with you to what? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Nehemiah can pull all their hair out and it will not make them more righteous. Nehemiah can impose every imaginable law stricter and stricter and stricter and it will not actually make them obey. But the spirit of God in your heart, beloved, does. That peace of God which surpasses all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus is what helps us to say no to those shiny lures. And when the sins of this present evil age are like the merchants in Nehemiah 13 promising much as they strive to sell us those things that lead us away from God, it is again the Spirit of God that guards us protects us, not simply from them, but even from us. This is the promise that God gives to you, beloved, that he will be your guardian, that he will be your righteousness, that he will be your sanctification in Christ Jesus. And if you know him, you are well guarded. If you do not know him by faith, your city doors are open. And a great danger lurks. But for the people of God, because of all that we have in Christ, even though this book does not find its resting point that we might hope for, if we keep turning the pages and follow them all the way to our Savior, in Him we actually find our happily ever after. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we have endured and enjoyed the twists and turns of the book of Nehemiah, we can't help but observe how disappointing it is that the people of God, now back from exile, with so much to celebrate, 
not simply their salvation, but the material benefit of seeing their temple rebuilt and their city walls complete, that they would stand and make promises to you and in only a couple chapters be found caught red-handed breaking those very same promises. And it shows us what we've learned, even sung in hymns of the past, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But we ask, O Lord, that you might be pleased to do what the rest of the hymn says. Uh, Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. We thank you for that alien righteousness that comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we thank you for that indwelling spirit that has a far more gentle ministry than that of Nehemiah and is far more effective than guarded city walls. And so we pray, Lord, that more and more you would conform us to the image of Christ and that you'd help us to recognize that in him we truly have all that we ever need and all that we ought to truly desire. Bless us, we pray, for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.